Welcome to Hope Assembly of God Online. We believe no matter the journey, there is always hope. This is a recording of our live Sunday sermon, unedited, uncut, real. Good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning. <clears throat> Let me real quickly introduce my wife, Lisa. Lisa, you want to just stand up and say hi? My wife and I have been in Cambodia for 28 years now, and um, it doesn't matter how many times I've seen that video, um, I, I have a hard time sometimes afterwards getting up and speaking. Because um, these are the people we love. These are the people God has called us to. Uh, Cambodia is 90, over 95% Buddhist. There's only Thailand that has more, a higher percentage of Buddhists than Cambodia does. These are people who, in many cases, have never had an adequate witness of the gospel. In many cases, people who've never heard the name of Jesus before. And we believe that that is time that that does change. Um, my wife and I first went to Cambodia in 1994. We've worked in a variety of areas during that time. We've been there. We've done everything from running an orphanage of 120 kids to doing... Uh, thank you. Um, uh, running an orphanage of about 120 kids to doing church planting on an island in the middle of the Mekong River to uh, media ministries, you name it. We've done it at some point. We've done everything from full-length evangelistic films that are re released in theaters, children's radio and TV programs, distance education programs for Bible schools. We've done just about all of it. But we're excited because when we go back in April, we're not giving up a lot of those other things. We're still doing those but we're also going to be involved in a new church planting opportunity in a province on the coast of Cambodia in a place called Gaip that has never had an Assemblies of God church, has had very little exposure to the gospel, and we're part of a, heading up a church planting team that's going down there to plant the first Assemblies of God church in that province. And uh, we're excited about that because that's why we got into missions in the first place, was to take the gospel to places it's never been before. And it's not that we haven't been doing that for the last 28 years, we have, but getting back into going directly and doing a church plant again and, and, and those kind of places, it, 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 it kind of makes everything fresh and new again. Uh, and we're excited about that and what God is going to be doing in Gait. And really, how we respond to God's call is important for us, but it's not just important for us, it's important for each one of us. Uh, because God doesn't just call missionaries, he doesn't just call pastors, he calls all of us to be a part of his kingdom, to have, a, we all have a role to play, a place in, a, in his kingdom, a, a purpose in his kingdom. We're not just, oh, it's just some extra thing that's added on. No, we each have a purpose and God has a plan for us. And we're called to be a part of what God is doing. And how we respond to that is important. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that this morning, responding to God's call. So if you have your Bible, if you turn to the book of Jonah, I'm going to be talking a little bit about Jonah this morning. Jonah's a prophet in the Old Testament that's only mentioned one time outside of the book that bears his name. In uh, 2 Kings chapter 14, he's mentioned briefly. Um, and in that chapter, it's talking about this time when uh, you had the divided kingdom, where you had the kingdom of Israel, that had 10 tribes that were to the north that were never had a good king. And then to the south, they had Judah with two tribes 
of the people of Israel, and they, they, had, they would go back and forth between good kings and bad kings. Jonah lived right on the border between the two. And in 2 Kings, he gives a prophecy to the king in Israel saying that they were going to recover some of the territory they had lost to their neighbors. And, and this is always interesting to me because I always think of just automatically, I don't know about you, but when I think of a prophet in the Old Testament, they're out there, you know, calling down, you know, hellfire and brimstone and the whole thing, you know, you change or this is going to, bad things going to happen or that bad thing's going to happen. But that wasn't this. In this instance, Jonah was going and saying, hey, I know, you know, these lands have been taken from us, but you're going to recover them, king. And you don't have to do anything, just be you. You know, it wasn't like if you repent, God will help you to recover them. It was nothing like that. It was just, hey, here's good news. It's coming. And it came to pass. It happened. So he was in a good position. He was, he was comfortable in that position. He was, he was well-liked by the administration, by the government that was there, the king that was there. Uh, he, he wasn't rocking the boat at all. In fact, he was helping that king, even though it was a wicked king at the time. And then we come to Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil is come up before me. So Nineveh was not yet the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It was still a big, powerful city. It was violent. It was known as a very cruel, violent people. And if they were coming to invade your area, you were, you were in a lot of trouble because they'd come in, they'd kill most of the people, anybody who was left alive. They'd take you and forcibly move you to a different part of their empire and bring other people in to settle in your homes. Uh, and basically, so if they were coming against you, you were either going to be dead or, or a, forced into being a refugee. Your life as you knew it was over. And it wasn't just that they were violent and cruel, because they were. I mean, the things they did were just incredibly cruel, but, but, but they were wicked. They were wicked to a point that it says that their wickedness, their evil, has come up before God to a place that God says, I can't let it go on anymore. I actually have to do something about it. It's gotten so bad. Now, there's only one other time that you see that, really, in the Bible, uh, a city talked about in that way, and that's with Sodom and Gomorrah. So you've got a city that's incredibly powerful, incredibly violent and cruel, and on a wickedness and a par with Sodom and Gomorrah. This is not a good place. I mean, not a place that you want to go as a, a, an Israelite. And God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell, call out against them the word I'm going to give you. So go from your nice cushy position where everybody likes you because you've prophesied good things and go there. And Jonah says, hey, that sounds great. Oh, I think I have something to do somewhere else. <laughs> you know, he goes, and if you were to look at a map on the back of your Bible, you'd see that there's Israel, you know, there's Israel up here, uh, and then there's Judah, and, and, and over here is Nineveh to the east. To the west, just to the west is the Mediterranean Sea. And your map is probably going to show a lot of the Mediterranean Sea, maybe Italy, things. Way beyond the edge of your map is Spain. And way over there by Spain is a place called Tarshish. And basically Jonah, oh there we go, he goes to Joppa. I forgot I had these slides, what do you know? But he goes to Joppa and he gets on a boat and says, where are you guys going? We're going to Tarshish. Great, I want on the boat, I want to ride. Okay, great, here's what you pay. And He's going literally in the opposite direction as far and as fast as he can. Unbelievable. 
And he gets on the boat. You guys know the story. How many of you have heard the story of Jonah before? There's four people, Pastor, over here who know, have heard the story. You need to, <laughs> no, there's a lot of you raised your hands. I'm just kidding. But, but you know, he goes, you've heard the story. He gets on the boat. He sets out. And God sends a storm up on the Mediterranean Sea that stops the boat from making any progress moving forward. And this is a bad storm. This is really a very, very severe storm. Not only does it stop the, 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 the ship from making any progress, but the people on the ship, the sailors, they're convinced that this is more than just a bad storm, that this is a supernatural storm. This storm is something so severe and remember, these guys have lived on, on they make their living on the sea. They, it's not the first storm they've encountered. It's not the second storm they've encountered. They've been there and done it all. And they're saying, this is so bad that there's a God behind it. There's something supernatural behind it. And these sailors are a lot like the Cambodian people. See, Cambodians are, are Buddhists, but they've also incorporated a lot of animistic practices into, their, into how they live. In animism, they believe that there's you know, a spirit that lives in that rock over there, or there's a, a spirit that lives in that forest over there, and, and you need to appease those spirits so that they don't harm you. If you fail to appease them, you're in trouble. So <clears throat> they live in fear of the spirit world around them. And these sailors like that, they realize, hey, there's something supernatural behind this storm. We need to, to figure out what God is, is causing this. And they start calling out to all their gods that they serve, trying to figure out who it is, what God it is that's cr creating this storm. They don't get anywhere. No God answers. And so they cast lots. They, the, the captain says, let's cast lots, see who it is that can give us the answer that we need. Find out who it is that's connected to a God that can give us the answer of how to stop this storm. And so they cast lots, and the lot falls to Jonah. Now the captain knows who Jonah is. It says when he got on the boat in Joppa, he told them that he was running from his God. But he didn't really say much more than that. And so the captain goes to Jonah and says, Jonah, um, we know you said you were running from your God, but uh, you know we're trying to figure out what's up with the storm. And we were just wondering, uh, what God is it actually that you serve? I think he was hoping that he'd say something like, well, I serve the God of Joppa. Because then the farther away they get from Joppa, the less influence that God has, and you know, the storm will get less severe, something like that, that they can maybe outrun it or something. He says, what God is it that you serve? And Jonah says, well, I serve the God who made all the sky, all the seas, all the earth, all of creation. And the captain, he's like, you, you serve who? You serve the God who created everything and you brought that on my boat? And he says, yeah, that's it. And he says, well, Jonah, what am I supposed to do with that? How am I supposed to, how can we stop this storm? What can we do? Joe says, well, I, I guess you could throw me overboard. And I love these sailors. I mean, I, they, just, they just grab my touch because they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Even we know it's not good to kill somebody. We're not going to do that. <laughs> you know, we're not going to kill. We're not going to throw you overboard. And so they try to row Jonah to shore. They go out of their way and try to get Jonah to the shore, but they can't. It says that the storm beats them back. They can't get there. And so they end up back on the boat. And do you get the irony of this? These sailors who are idol worshipers are, are risking their lives to save the guy who put them at danger in the first place. So they get back on the ship, and they're like, Jonah, I don't know what to tell you. We tried. 
We tried to get you to shore. And they, they said, God, look, we don't know what to tell you, God. We tried to get him to shore. You know we did everything we could, but we couldn't make it. So we don't have any choice, so don't hold this against us, God. And they take Jonah and they throw him overboard. And the storm stops. Now, if I'm on a boat and I know the storm's going on and it's so severe that I'm convinced it's supernatural in nature, I'm going to be worried. I'm going to be scared. I don't want to drown. I don't want to be in a shipwreck. But if I'm on there and, I, and I'm scared like that and then I throw somebody overboard and it stops and it's completely calm, now I'm going to be terrified. Because before you could say, well, I think it's God. I think it's supernatural. But now when it stops like that, there's no question anymore. It is supernatural. It is God. It is the hand of God you've just seen. And that's going to be terrifying to them. And it is. It says that the, uh, in chapter 1... Verse 16, it says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I mean, they, they were terrified, and they realized this is not just some God that we serve. This isn't just some little local deity. This is the God of all creation who we're talking about. And they make vows to him. They offer sacrifices to him. Basically, they turn their lives around. They say, God, if you're the God who's over all of this, you're the one we want to serve. You're the one we want to be in right standing with. And they take steps to do it. Amazing turnaround. And really from no preaching at all. Right? The only thing they've been exposed to is a guy who tried to hide it from them. And I can just imagine myself. I, 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 try, I read these stories and I try to put myself in them. And I can see myself, okay, you're on the back of the boat. You've thrown Jonah overboard. The storm stops. You're terrified. You offer these sacrifices. You make these vows to God. You're done. The sun's out. A little seagull goes by. Everything's nice. And I can just imagine looking at the other sailors and one of them going, oh, hey, um, what happened to Jonah? You look over the side. There he is treading water over there next to the boat. And you say, hey, Jonah. And just about that time, a fish comes up and swallows Jonah. Now, I grew up uh, with Disney cartoons. We'd watch The Wonderful World of Disney on Sunday nights after church, things like that. And um, any of you ever see the old Pinocchio Disney movie or read the book? Yeah, I, and remember, there's this part where, where Pinocchio gets swallowed by a whale. And it turns out he, he's in this big cavernous room that's kind of like this big room, you know, and you can see the ribs of the whale and, and there's like a little shack in there and Geppetto's sitting on the dock by the shack fishing and there's, there's a, a cat and there's even a little goldfish in a bowl in there. With, you remember that? Okay, this is nothing like that, <laughs> okay? Um, that, 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 that's, that's not how it was. I mean, imagine being swallowed by a giant fish or a whale. It would, be, it would be absolute, complete pitch black. You wouldn't be able to see anything. Nothing, not your hand in front of your face, nothing. Completely black. And the sounds that would be there from, from the noises that the fish makes as it swims and the muscles moving and, 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 and the digestive uh, muscles contracting and, and kneading you and pushing in, uh, on you and, and the pressures as you, the fish would swim down in the ocean and back up, the pressures that would increase and decrease on you and the, and the burning in your eyes and in your lungs from the acid uh, in the whale's stomach and the smells and the, I, I can't think of anything worse than being in that whale's stomach. I mean, you want to talk about a living hell, that's it. 
And the Bible says that Jonah was in there for three days and then he prayed. Do you, do you get that? He was in there for three days and then he prayed. I'm sorry, it doesn't take me three days there. I mean, the fish is starting to swallow me, I'm praying. You know, but, but Jonah is so stubborn, so set on running from what God wants for him, and so set on doing his own thing instead of God's thing, that he's literally waited three days in a living hell before he prays. And then it's not surprising what he prays, it's surprising what he doesn't pray. Because what he does pray, it's recorded in the second chapter, verses 1 through 9. You can read that later for yourself. But, but you know, he, he says things like, God, where can I go from you? Where can I run from you, God? You're everywhere. You're in the farthest sea. You're in the depths of the ocean. You're there. You're every place. I can't get away from you, God. But never once does he say, God, I'm sorry. Never once does he say, God, forgive me. Never once does he say, God, give me a second chance. I'll go. Nothing. Unbelievable. But God is a God of incredible grace. And despite this half-hearted prayer of Jonas and the whale, God decides to give him a second chance. In chapter 2, verses 10, it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish and had vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. God gave Jonah a second chance at life. But some people say, well, you know, he's, this is just a, a story. Nobody can live in the belly of a whale for three days. That's, well, that's true. It would take a miraculous act for God to allow Jonah to continue to live for three days in the belly of that whale. That's true. Some people say, well, he was dead probably and got, and got spit out. And that, that's just as miraculous. If God allowed him to die, got spit out after three days, and God brought him back to life, Yep, that'd be a miracle too. And that's really the point. It's not whether or not he was alive in that whale's belly or if it was three days of him being dead. That's not the point. The point is that after three days, God miraculously gave him a second chance at life. And he not only gave him a second chance at life, you read on, it says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. God gave him a second chance at life, and he gave him a second chance to do what God had called him to do, to answer God's call, to be a part of God's plan. And this time, Jonah goes. But he goes in the most half-hearted way I've ever seen anybody respond to God. I mean, it's, it's amazing. He, he goes, and maybe, maybe this has happened to you if you've ever had a, a, a young person, a child in your house that... You know, and they need to clean their room. And they're watching TV, playing a video game on television or whatever. And you're like, hey, you need to go clean your room. No, no, I'm busy right now. I'm, I'm playing my game. I'll, I'll do it later. No, no, you need to go clean your room now. But I, I can do it after dinner tonight. No, no, you need to clean your room now. I'm in the middle of the game. It doesn't matter. You need to go clean your room. Wait till I get to a save point. No, no, go clean your room. No, I'm, I'm busy. You go flip off the TV. Go clean your room. And they're fine. They get up and they go to clean the room. Now, they've gone to clean their room, but you look in their eyes, they're not cleaning their room in their eyes, right? On the inside, they're not cleaning their room. They're complying on the outside, but on the inside, no. And that's kind of how Jonah is. He goes to Nineveh, and he gets there, and he starts to preach the word that God gives him. But he preaches the absolute bare minimum. He does the absolute bare minimum he can do and still fulfill what God tells him to do. 
He goes throughout, three, throughout the entire city for three days. It takes three days for him to go throughout the entire city of Nineveh. And he goes throughout that entire city pre- preaching an eight-word message. Eight words that are recorded for us in chapter 3, verse 4. Here it is. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. He's basically walking around going, in 40 days, you're all dead. You're all going to be wiped out in 40 days. 40 days and you're, it's over. And that's it. He doesn't say anything about why they're in trouble. He doesn't tell them who's mad at them. Doesn't say repent. Doesn't say anything other than 40 days and you're all dead. But God takes this half, you know, the, 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 this sad little sermon that he's done and uses it to bring about the greatest turnaround recorded in the Bible. I mean, it's incredible. He takes this little eight words that he spoke and uses it to change a city of 120,000 people, a city that was known for being cruel, violent, wicked on the level of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when they hear this little eight-word sermon, it says that all the people, everyone who heard it, that they put on sackcloth and ashes, which is a sign of repentance, and and they fasted and prayed uh, to God. It says the king, when the king heard it, the king puts on sackcloth and ashes and fasts and prays and repents to God. And then my favorite part, this might be my favorite part in the entire story, just because it's so weird. It's so out there when you first read it. And I've never seen it any place else in the Bible, never seen it any place in my life. But the king, he's, after he puts on the sackcloth ashes and tells him to go fast and repent, he says, okay, now go and get all of your livestock, all of your dogs all your camels, all your cows, all your livestock, put sackcloth and ashes on them and make sure they fast and repent too. I'm not making this up, it's in there. (laughs) I mean, I know Pastor Randy's a good pastor, but I don't believe any time you guys have had a move of God and at the end of the service, you're all there at the altar and he says, wow, God's really met us here tonight. Now when you go home, make sure your dog and cat repent. (laughs) I'm betting that hasn't happened, right? I've never seen this, but that's what happens here. And you think, well, that's ridiculous. Why do they even have that in there? Here's why. Did, you, did, did, did Jonah tell them anything? No. They have no idea who's mad at them. They have no idea why. They're saying, we want to get right with God, and we don't want to take any chances here. I don't care if we look ridiculous. Go have your livestock repent. Because we want to get right with God. That's how desperate they were to get right with God in the middle of all this. And Jonah was no help at all. Now I can tell you, in going to this new city in Cambodia in Gaip to do this church plant, um, we're excited about it. We believe God's got some great things in store. And if God did a fraction of what he did in Nineveh that day, in Gaip, if a quarter of the people turned around like that, I'd be thrilled to death. I'd be, you'd find me dancing in the streets in Kipe. I'd be so excited. I'd just be uh, beside myself. So Jonah must have been pretty pumped about this, right? Well, you'd think so, but then you go on, and after God hears the people repent and forgives them and, and decides not to destroy them, you go on to... to uh, Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. 
And he goes, and it goes on and says, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to live, to die than to live. Incredible. He's basically saying, God, we're your chosen people. Israel is your people, not these other nations, not the Canaanites, not those sailors, nobody else. It's just us. We deserve your blessings. It's our birthright. It's our, our, it's what we deserve to have. We have a right to this. They don't. They can just go die. Your blessing is for us, not for them. So go kill them like you said you were going to. You see, basically, he's a bigot. He's saying it's for us and the inside, and that's all. We're the ones who should get your blessing. Unbelievable attitude. And then he takes it one step further and becomes the first drama queen in history by saying, and, and I'd just rather die than be live with these people like this. You know? <laughs> Unbelievable attitude. But what's even more unbelievable is that God still has grace for Jonah. And he says, I want to try teaching Jonah one more time. I want to change his heart. So <clears throat> Jonah, he's mad. He's upset. He's waiting for God to wipe out this city. He goes outside, <clears throat> goes down the road a little piece, and sits down in the road where he can see the city, puts up a little kind of shelter, lean-to kind of thing. And he says, I'm going to sit here, God, until you destroy the city like you said you were going to. I'll wait here those full 40 days, but they bet you better destroy it. And he sits there, and God sends a plant to grow up on this little shelter he, he built. He built a little lean-to, and this plant, this vine, comes and grows up on it really quick and spreads out over him its leaves to give him shade. Now, I'm sure if, any, if we went out here in the, in the parking lot today and sat down out here by the road and uh, had a little lean-to propped up and, and a plant, in a matter of an hour or so, grows up over the top of it and provides us with shade. I think we're all in agreement. That's God, right? I mean, you know, plants don't grow that fast, even with the miracle grow. It's, you know, it's, it's God. And Jonah recognizes that this is God giving him this plant. And the verse, and, and if you read the Bible, uh, you know, chapter four there, you'll find that he, he's happy about the plant. It says he's, he's pleased that, that God's provided him with the shade. Now, that sounds real nice and polite, but you've got to take it in context the way Jonah is throughout this entire book. Basically, what it's saying is he's like, that's right, God, I deserve the shade. It's my right. Now get on and kill these people. I'm not making this up. You can read it, right? This isn't something I'm reading into this. This is what he's done. Well, that night, God says, okay, here comes the lesson. Sends a worm to eat the vine. The worm kills the vine in the morning. The sun comes up. The wind starts to blow. The vine blows over. And says Jonah again goes on one of these rants about how this isn't fair. He shouldn't, that God take away the shade from him. And he, he wishes he could just die again. And the book ends in chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, with God trying one last time 
to get through to Jonah and have a conversation with him. And he says, Jonah, you know, you're more upset about losing the comfort and convenience of this little plant and the shade it provided. You're more upset about that plant and losing it than you were about the 120,000 people who are dying and going to hell. And the book ends. And you can't help but be drawn to that contrast. At least I can't. I, I, I'm drawn to the contrast between, on the one hand, Jonah, who's obsessed with himself, with his own comfort and his own convenience. He's grown apathetic and even antagonistic towards the nations and the people around him. And despite being God's chosen from among God's chosen people, he runs from God's call and only grudgingly complies when he has no choice, doing the bare minimum that he can. And in the end, he ends up bitter and alone. And on the other hand, you have the sailors and you have the people of Nineveh, people who've never had access to God, people who are worshiping idols, who all of a sudden hear the, 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 just the briefest glimpse of the call of God, of God's word, and turn around so wholeheartedly that they're even willing to do something as foolish as have their animals repent on the off chance it might keep them from God. They're willing to do anything, even look ridiculous, to get to God. We have a friend in Cambodia, uh, a man named Samat. Um, if you go to the next slide here. Uh, Samat, we met initially at our orphanage. He was one of the kids at the orphanage. He's the one who's standing next to the flagpole on this side. Um, Samat was, uh, he, he was at the orphanage when we arrived. He, he, when he was in the, in the late 1980s and early 90s, his parents had both died when he was like fifth, sixth grade age. And so a lady in his town took him in, in his village. Uh, she didn't have any family. She took him in. She was pretty much destitute as well, but at least he had a place to sleep, you know, and that kind of a thing. And um, a few years went by, and, and the government opened an orphanage in the capital of the province and allowed Samat to go there. And so that was a big step up. He was able to get, you know, uh, food, regular food, clothing. He was able to go to school for the first time. This was all during the middle of a civil war that was going on in Cambodia, so there was very little resources. And so the fact that he had access to anything was great, but it was still very minimal. And he got to the orphanage, and he, he, although he had some more access to opportunities and things, he also started to have some physical problems. He started to have a hard time keeping up with the other kids. You can even see all these kids are pretty thin, but he was exceptionally thin and, and almost skeletal at times. He, he, he wouldn't have much energy. Uh, it didn't matter what he ate. And he, uh, he would start to have chest pains whenever he would lay down. So it got to the point where he couldn't lay down flat on, on the ground to you know, on his bed to sleep at night, they had to take his bed and prop it at a 45 degree angle and he would lay on that to sleep. 
It's obvious something was seriously wrong, but there was no health care. The Civil War was going on. There were no real doctors or anything around. Uh, but the, the, the orphanage staff decided to try to do what they could, and they took him to something called the Grutier. A Grutier is kind of like a kind of like a cross between a traditional healer who uses herbs and things and a witch doctor who uses spiritism and things. So they took him to this Grutier and, and told him what was going on, and this guy started to ask him out some questions. He said, so you live at the orphanage? He says, yes. And you go to the school that's over here? He says, yeah, that's the school I go to. And so you walk down the street every day? Yeah, I walk back and forth to school every day. Do you ever have to go to the bathroom while you're on your way to school or back from school or anything? He says, well, sure. Well, what do you do? Well, I just go, right? And he says, well, have you ever urinated on this tree over here on the corner, this corner of this road, this big tree? He says, well, yeah, I have. He says, well, that's your problem. There's an evil spirit that lives in that tree, and you urinated on his tree and have offended the spirit. I'm not kidding. This is actually what the guy told him. And he says, so you need to appease that spirit to get relief. So you need to go and offer a chicken to the spirit that lives in this tree. And he explained what he had to do, and, and, and the orphanage staff member and, and Samad, they went and got a chicken and went and made this offering to this spirit that lives in this tree. Now, if you've ever had a chronic health problem or been around someone with a chronic health problem, you know they have good and bad days, right? Well, after he offered this chicken, he had a good day, so he thought, well, it must have worked. But it wasn't long before it started getting bad again, so he's like, well, I'm must need to do something more. They offer something else, or he'd find other spirits that he might have offended and, and make offerings there, and he was trying everything he could. But it really wasn't getting any better. And about that time, the, assembly, the, the government asked the Assemblies of God to take over running that orphanage uh, for them. And the missionary who came in started having church services in the city, um, and uh, on Sunday mornings and on Sunday afternoons, he would, have, he would teach English using the Bible. And <clears throat> Samat and some of the older boys started going to these services. Not because they so much believed uh, what was being taught or were interested in it at all, but because, see, on Sunday mornings is when the orphanage staff would give the kids at the orphanage chores to do, and if they didn't, weren't there, if they went to church instead, they didn't have to do any chores. So they were good teenagers, wanted to get out of everything, so they went to, to church instead. You can go to the next picture here, too. Let's see, yeah, this is him again. He's the second one from, from the right. Um... But if you go, you start to hear. And if you hear long enough, you start to listen. And as time went by, he started hearing and listening. And to his surprise, he found he started to believe what was being said. And he ended up becoming a Christian. And he got a Bible for himself uh, and started um, you know, helping out with the church, with outreaches and things and teaching. And uh, just really growing spiritually. And about that time, the missionary decided to bring in a medical team from the U.S. Um, because the Civil War was going on, no medical services around. It, the Civil War had been going on for about 30 years at this point. So people in that area had not had any access to medical services most of their life. So he brought in a medical team of doctors and nurses from Des Moines, Iowa. They flew in <clears throat> and held a clinic in the town and checked all the kids at the orphanage as well. Well, there was a nurse who checked out Samat, and she listened to his heart and said, boy, there's something, there's something not right here. And she got him to go, she took him down to the Capitol, um, and there wasn't much in the Capitol either, but, but at least she was able to get a few tests done. She got an EKG done and chest X-ray, and when she went back to the U.S., she took those results from the EKG and the chest X-ray with her and showed them to a cardiologist she worked with back in Des Moines, Iowa. 
And he looked at it and he said, wow, this is, this is really serious. He needs a valve, heart valve replacement or he's going to die. In fact, I'm kind of surprised he's still alive right now with how long he's had this. Um, but he needs this very soon. And to make a long story short, she started doing some checking, talked to a lot of people and got this hospital to donate all of their services, the doctor to donate all his services, an airline to donate tickets, and within a few months, Samat was on a plane flying to Des Moines, Iowa in February, uh, in the middle of the winter, to have open heart surgery done, heart valve replacement surgery done at no cost to him. Um, he got there, uh, there's actually a Cambodian community in Des Moines, Iowa, and there's a church, a Christian church there, uh, made up of Cambodians, and a couple in that church who didn't have any children of their own took him in while he was there. He was there for about three months, you know, leading up to the surgery and then recovering from it. And as, they, as he stayed in their home, they really started to make a connection. And it was about a week or two before he was scheduled to go back to Cambodia. They called him into the kitchen and said, Samat, we'd like to talk to you. I said, okay. So, you know, he sat down at the table with him and he said, um, you know, we, we, we really love you, Samat. We care about you a lot, and we, we want to see what's best for you, and, and we, we'd like to adopt you and make you a part of our family. You'd have a family. You'd have a home. You'd get all the medical care you need for ongoing medical care for this heart condition. You'd, you'd have a good education. You wouldn't have to go back to the orphanage. You wouldn't have to go back to the middle of a civil war. You'd be able to stay here with us. What do you say? And he said, you know, I really appreciate what you're asking or what you're offering me. He says, but God has called me to be a pastor in Cambodia, and I want to go back there to tell people about Jesus. And he left it all and went back into the middle of a civil war, back into the middle of, a, of, a, of an orphanage, into an institution, no guarantees of anything, left everything that any Cambodian at that time could have wanted, left it all, and went back to Cambodia. Since then, he, he got back, well, he got back to Cambodia, he finished high school, he went to our Assemblies of God Bible College, um, graduated from that, he planted a church in the capital city of Phnom Penh, and then he had an opportunity to do some more studying. You can go to the next slide. Um, he had the opportunity to do some more studying. Uh, this is him now, he, and he went to Singapore, finished a master's degree, and came back to Cambodia again, became the dean of students of our Bible college, ended up becoming the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God of Cambodia, planted another church in the capital city. Now, he, if you go to the next slide, he has a wife, and uh, he actually has four kids. This is a picture's a little old now. He has four kids now, um, just doing wonderfully. And we work with him almost, almost weekly while we're in Cambodia. Great friend of ours. We're very close. But none of that was on the table that day. None of that was there. It was a complete uncertainty. He had an opportunity that most Cambodians can only dream about at that time, to stay in the U.S., to live there, have a family who loved him, all, of his, all those comforts that come with that. Jonah, on the other hand, wanted to run from God's call to avoid any kind of discomfort. Samat was tempted to abandon God's call to embrace comfort. Jonah ran from God's call while Samat embraced it. And as a result, Jonah ended up bitter and alone. And Samat gained a family, a ministry, and the joy of being a part of what God was doing in Cambodia. 
And I can't help but wonder, as I think about Jonah and Samat, and the sailors on that boat, people of Nineveh, I can't help but wonder who we're more like in our own lives. Are, are we more likely to fulfill God's call like Samad did despite the discomfort and sacrifice? Or are we more likely to be like Jonah, running away from the difficult and uncomfortable thing that God calls us to, to do and only grudgingly comply when we feel we have no other choice? We need to respond with gratitude like Samad did that day. You know, I know it's, it's tough. I, we live in an uncertain time. You know, I, I know this is your first Sunday back after not meeting face-to-face in quite a while. And, and who knows what's going to happen in the coming weeks or the coming months. We live in a time with the pandemic certainly brings uncertainty. So does an increasingly anti-Christian society that we live in. Economically, things are unstable. Things are changing. Inflation's you know, high, yeah, it's tough. How, how, you know, I get it. You know, people saying, well, Troy, how am I supposed to do things, reach out and do new things when, when this is what the, the reality we live in? There's anxiety that's there, uncertainty that's there. But you know what's interesting? There's a story that, that Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 24. He tells the story of the talents, parable of the talents. You guys might, might have heard this parable before. It's where a landowner is, is going on a trip and he has, brings three servants out. He gives one of them five talents, one of them two talents, one of them one talent. Says, go do, use these any way you want. And then I'll, I'll come back. When I come back, we'll settle up accounts. You know, go have fun with it. Yeah, you guys remember this story? And the five go out, the guy goes out with five, comes back with five more than two, comes back with two more than one, comes back with just one, right? Now, there's a couple things I want to point out about this story. First of all, a lot of times we read this and we think, oh, talents. Yeah, like I play the guitar, so I should use my talents for God. That's not this, okay? That's not what was being meant, what was meant here by the, when Jesus said that. Though that, that's true, that if you can play the guitar, if you have some ability or some gifting like that, you should use it for for the kingdom, but that's not what Jesus is saying here because I think that diminishes what God, Jesus is saying here. You see, a talent was a, 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 a financial amount. It was a monetary amount that was equivalent to about $1.6 million. That means this guy had a servant. He called in a servant and said, here's $8 million. I want you to go have fun with it while I'm gone. Use it, and we'll just settle up when you come back, when I come back. One comes over, and the next guy, here's $3.2 million. Go use it. The one that just got one? Sounds like, boy, he didn't get much. He got $1.6 million. Uh, The point is, this is a lavish gift by this landowner. Uh, even, Even the one who just got one. It was an incredibly lavish gift to say, here, use this. I mean, it was, it, was, it, it was above and beyond what should be expected. And he didn't overwhelm them with it because it says he gave it each according to their ability, right? So it wasn't something where he was giving them too much. That wasn't the case. 
But then they go off and they come back. And, and you guys, how many of you heard a sermon on this, on this passage? Okay, three or four of you. Yeah. And uh, so he, he comes back. And when you heard that sermon before, did they focus mostly on the guy with the one talent? Okay, I don't want to talk at all about him today. I want to talk about the other two for a second. Because those other two, they come back. The one has five, gives five more back. One has two, gives two more back. And the landowner says the almost exact same thing to both of them. And in part, what he says to them is this. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You want to know how to have joy and peace in the midst of uncertainty like you've never had before? Do what God calls you to do. That's it. Do what God calls you to do and you will have joy like you cannot believe. You will have peace like you would not believe. The kind of peace and joy that people around you see in the circumstances we have today that will bring them to come and say, how can you be like this? And it'll give you an opportunity to build the kingdom even more. God gives each one of us opportunities. Opportunities that are unique to us. I'll never have the opportunity you'll have. Your pastor will never have the opportunity you have. You'll have opportunities that you won't. Each one of us have unique opportunities that we have every day. And God calls us for a unique purpose. And each day, we have a choice to respond to the call of God or to ignore it. And you can respond and enter into that joy and that peace. Or you can let it pass you by and end up bitter and alone like Jonah did. You can wholeheartedly jump into it like like Samat did or like the people of Nineveh did, running to get close to God and doing anything. Or you can half-heartedly comply when you have no choice. Now, I know this isn't this church. You guys have supported us for years. We want to thank you so much. You're a part of everything we do there. Samat's story is a part of your church's story. But I've been to churches before where the pastor tells me, you know, I, when, when we have a missionary come, I can't tell anybody they're coming. I said, what do you mean? He says, if I tell people a missionary's coming, they won't show up because they don't want to give. I'm sorry. That's not right. That's not who we are. We need to have that gratitude that says, God, I didn't deserve any of this. You've given me lavishly above and beyond what I should ever deserve. How can I do anything but respond with gratitude and freely give it to those you give me opportunity? I want to challenge you this morning. pray, to make a commitment to pray and ask God to help you to hear his voice clearly, to hear his call. And not just hear his call, but do what he calls you to do. Because it's not just the hearing, it's the doing. 
And I can guarantee you that it's going to be something that's going to be strange at times, uncomfortable at times. It's going to involve sacrifice, sure. But I guarantee you, you'll have joy like you never had. You'll have peace like you never had. Bow your heads and close your eyes for just one minute. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to respond. Um, but before I do that, I'm, in just a minute, I'm going to ask you, if you're willing to make that commitment to pray that prayer, I'm going to ask you to stand up so we can pray together for you. But before I do that, I just want to explain, I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to do anything to embarrass you. But I'm asking you to stand because what that does in your life is it builds an altar in your life. It gives you an anchor point for your faith. It's like when you see the stories of the people of the, the, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, when they go and they meet with God and, and God makes a promise with them, they build an altar. It's a place that they can look back on later on and say, this was where God told me this. This is where God and I made a deal. This is where God and I made a covenant where God promised me this and this. And what's going to happen is if you pray this prayer, I guarantee you, it might be, might be next week, might be next month, might be later today, that you're going to have an opportunity to do something. God's going to speak to you, and it's going to be something that's going to be difficult, it'll make you uncomfortable, might be sacrificial. God's going to give you an opportunity, and you're going to have a choice to make. And by standing up in this moment and saying, yes, I'll do this, I'll pray this prayer, you're building an altar that you'll be able to look back to and say, no, I stood up on this day in that church with that missionary and I made this commitment and I'm going to do what God tells me to do here. It gives you that anchor for your faith to hold on to, to, to lock into. It gives you that physical act to help you to look back at and say, this is my moment. This is where God did this. So with your eyes bowed and your he uh, eyes closed, heads bowed, if you're willing to make that commitment, to pray that prayer and say, God, help me to hear your voice clearly and not just hear it, but to do what you call me to do. I'd just like you to stand up right now wherever you're at so we can pray real quick with you. I'm not going to take a lot of time with this. Dear Jesus, I just thank you so much for each one standing here tonight saying, God, I, I want to be a part of this, Lord. I want to I want to I want to be a part of answering your call, God, whatever you want me to do. I'm so grateful, Lord, for what you've done for us. How could I do anything but but answer yes, Lord? Lord, I pray for each one standing here that you would give them a fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit, Lord. That you would empower them, that you would give them ears to hear your voice, eyes to see with your eyes, Lord. The opportunities that you bring in their path, the the times when you're speaking to their heart, giving them words to say, Lord, I pray that you would make them sensitive to your leading and guiding and direction. And not just that they would hear and see those things, Lord, but that they would have the strength and empowerment by your Holy Spirit to do the things you're calling them to do. Lord, I thank you for a church that's celebrating a 100th anniversary. And all the things that you've done that we can look back to in this church and say, God's hand is in this. And if God's hand was in it then, God's hand will be in it going forward. Lord, I just pray and commit this church to you, Lord, to do even greater things in the coming years, Lord. To be a part of building your kingdom here in New Jersey, in America, and around the world. We thank you for each one of them, Lord. Be with them as they go. In your name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to Hope Online Podcast. For more information about Hope Assembly of God, go to www.godgivesyouhope.com or download our app in the App Store.